Hello and welcome to the Health and Wellness Show here on the SOT Radio Network. I am your host, Doug. With me today is Erica. Hi. So there's only two of us today. All our other uh, Health and Wellness Show hosts have uh, left us in the lurch. No, I'm just kidding. No, they uh, couldn't be with us today, unfortunately. But, uh, oh, I didn't say the date. Today is December 14th, 2018. So today we are talking about water. Water, water everywhere, but not a drop to drink. So everybody knows what water is, so I probably don't have to cover that, and how important and vital it is for our health and wellness. Well, survival, basically. You can't survive for very long without water. But um, we have basically been extremely careless with our water as a race um, from heavy metals, fracking chemicals, pharmaceutical waste, industrial pollutants, microplastics, agricultural chemicals, dangerous microorganisms. It seems like there's no end to the amount of crap that we put into our water. And we're really doing ourselves a disservice by doing this because, you know, what do you do when there's no water left that you can actually drink. You know, not to mention the environmental impact, all the wildlife, uh, plants, animals, everything. Everything needs water. And we're just like destroying our natural resource. So we're going to talk about that today. It's sure to be uh, a very positive show. Um, yeah. So Erica... What do you think about water? <laughs> it's essential. I know that. Yes. Yeah. Well, it seems like if you read SOT regularly, and it seems almost weekly, there's some new, you know, story out or misgivings or communities getting polluted and... Um, We carry that a lot, and it can be frustrating, and for me, it makes me angry, you know, because you you get this whole, well, right now, not just right now, but in general, it's like climate change, and, you know, cows are bad, and meat is bad, (laughs) and, but it's like the water issue kind of just gets brushed over, and and it's concerning, because a necessity that everyone needs and it's not really appreciated or respected and we definitely in the west take it for granted absolutely yeah it seems like it never really gets onto the radar of people until there's a major incident right like the whole flint michigan thing uh not too long ago mm-hmm. where um Basically, it was like a national scandal, essentially, because it's, it started showing up because what happened was basically they, they switched um, where they were getting their water from. And they, didn't, they, they weren't getting it from Lake Michigan anymore. They started getting it from, uh, I don't remember where it was exactly. But, um, and when they did that, they weren't um, adding the stuff necessary to keep the pipes, which were lead pipes, from rusting and breaking down essentially so people were getting a lot more lead in uh, their drinking water than is safe 
Although it could be argued that no lead in drinking water is safe, but of course there are guidelines that allow for a little bit. And uh, part of the problem was that the chlorine that they were adding to kill off microorganisms um, was actually bonding to the lead um, so that there wasn't enough left to actually kill off the microorganisms. And then all these people started coming down with Legionnaire's disease. So this was a major scandal. Um, and at first they were kind of, uh, you know, humming and hawing about it, all the officials saying, oh, we don't know that it's actually coming from the water and we don't know what's actually going on. And they weren't taking much action on it. But eventually it kind of got to the point where, you know, people weren't um, willing to just sit back and accept this. And I think for more PR purposes than anything else, they actually started to move on it. Um, and I don't even know the status of it right now. I think all the lead pipes they were going to replace, but they weren't supposed to all be replaced until 2019. And um, I think that they've corrected the problem, but they're still telling people to stick with bottled water there just yeah, to be on the safe side. Have yeah. some bottled water. Yeah. And they were saying what, it wasn't even just for drinking. It was also for, um, for bathing, for like basically like cooking anything that you were going to use water for you should be using uh, bottled water because uh, because everything else is not safe. Which is so crazy in and of itself. I mean, we did a show, I don't know, a year or so ago about tap water. And, you know, it's equally as bad. Well, maybe, maybe not as bad as in Michigan for most people. But, uh, yeah, tap water has a lot of, like, terrible things added to it well added to it and just found in it you know i think we were reading one of the articles here and i think they said that they test for uh, I'm, I'm trying to remember the numbers um oh yeah okay they test for 91 potential water contaminants in the u.s in the tap water and i imagine that's probably like pretty pretty close to what's done in most western countries although i don't know for sure um, but yeah, 91, 000, or sorry, 91 potential uh, water contaminants. But in the U.S. alone, there are over 60,000 chemicals that can find their way into the water supply. So, I mean, 91, it's like, oh, that sounds pretty good. But then it's like, oh, by the way, there's 60,000 potential things in there. Yeah. Well, what's interesting about this is, um, you know, when you read about the Flint water issue, and then you start to dig deeper about and I'm just talking about the U.S. here, um, other states, like every single state in the United States has had some issue. Yeah. Like, uh, California, you know, um, one, two, three, TCP. It's basically like a big oil manufactured uh, pesticide. Um, there's also uh, one for dioxin, which is an in industry solvent stabilizer, uh, pollutes the waters of North Carolina's Cape Fear. New York and Pennsylvania have had outbreaks of waterborne Legionnaire's disease. Um, Hoosick Falls, New York has the PFOAs, which is essentially the man-made chemical used in Teflon, and we'll go into that a little bit because, you know, they're phasing that out and replacing it with something that's equally as toxic. Mm. Um, hexavalent chromium, um, it's a cancer-causing chemical, and we learned about that from Erin Brockovich. Uh, mm -hmm. the, she's kind of like a water 
activist. Uh, she yeah. made a movie. I can't remember the name of the movie. If anyone... It was just called Aaron Brockovich, I think, wasn't it? Yeah. And um, and then Houston, Texas has got the hexa hexavalent chromium um, fracking, which we'll go into a little bit. So uh, it seems like at least for in the United States, like the 1930s was kind of the dawn of the chemical uh, industry. And that's when this stuff started seeping into the water and the EPA is pretty much a useless organization. But I will <laughs> say, I, I have read several studies by people, scientists who work for the EPA who try and bring these studies out to the public, but they're usually shunned and fired or, you know, their story isn't really shared. So according to Aaron Brockovich, uh, in the United States, we don't just have one flint. We have hundreds of flints. And mm. it seems like it's happening consistently. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, like the pollution is terrible, of course, but then there's also the stuff that we add to the water, mm -hmm. um, tap water. Like, I don't know if you – I grew up in um, – I was lucky because I was outside the area where they actually added fluoride. It's like the, the next township over, they were adding fluoride and my township didn't. Mm -hmm. And, you know, my mom, of course, at the time thinking she was doing it right, would get me fluoride treatments at the dent, the dentist. It's like, you know, thanks mom. But, um, you know, in Toronto where I've spent most of my adult life, the, they do fluoridate the water and, you know, this whole thing behind fluoride, I mean, our listeners are probably fairly familiar with it, but it's just, it, it's kind of unbelievable that they have turned this industrial pollutant, which the EPA um, ca uh, considers a class four hazardous waste. So you're actually, it's illegal to dump it anywhere, right? It's, except um, we're in the water supply. Except, and then they turn around and say, oh, we need to add this to the water supply. Like we're doing people a favor by adding this. It's unbelievable. Like the whole thing about it helping teeth is just, I mean, I think that there might be something to it to a certain extent, but to say that it should be drunk by people every day, all the time. And it's not, you know, you can't do a meter dose if it's just in the drinking water. Everybody's yeah. just getting whatever, do however much water they drink, that's the dose they're getting. And it's just, it's unbelievable. I mean, if you, you know, want to uh, protect your teeth with fluoride, and I would recommend doing some research on that first, because I, like I say, I think there might be something to it, but, you know, getting a fluoride treatment at the dentist where they put it directly on your teeth is very different than drinking it. Um, because, I mean, basically it's, it's, it's uh, medicating people without their consent. Yeah, and they're even adding it into food, uh, like frozen chicken, oh, God. ice cream. I mean, again, and it may be different in Europe than it is in the United States. Um, I, where I grew up, there was not fluoridated water, but living in Hawaii for many years, all the military bases, which says a lot, has fluoridated mm. water. And, I mean, we could go on and on about fluoride, but as you said, most of our listeners are probably pretty well informed about its yeah. evils. Yeah. Well, just so people know what we're talking about, it actually has been shown to damage tooth enamel, 
increase risk of fractures, suppress immune and thyroid function, increase cancer risk, disrupt the function of the pineal gland, which I think is very telling. Yeah. You know, they've even shown, there's even been studies that have shown that it actually um, decreases IQ of children, that children in uh, fluoridated water areas will have lower IQ than those in non-fluoridated areas. It's pretty disgusting. Insidious. Yeah, it really is. And then there's a the controversial chlorine as well, which, you know, I mean, you could look at it in many different ways. I would like to think that there might be alternatives to chlorine, to chlorinating the water. Mm -hmm. But, uh, I mean, it's added in to kill off microorganisms, which, of course, you know, very important. I mean, as we saw from Flint, Michigan, like you need... You need some way of uh, getting rid of these microorganisms. The problem is that chlorine doesn't know when to stop killing microorganisms, and it completely kills off the good bacteria in your uh, digestive tract as well. Um, they've identified chlorine as being a leading cause of bladder cancer. Um, it's also associated with rectal and breast cancers, asthma, birth defects, premature aging of the skin. You know, chlorine, fortunately, is a pretty, like, relatively easy to get out of uh, tap water. I think uh, they say that just leaving it, letting it sit on the counter for, I can't remember how many hours, it might have been 24 hours or something, will, it will actually evaporate. Um, and I think the Brita takes some of it out, too, like those little countertop filters mm -hmm. will take out chlorine. But... Um, yeah, I, I wish that they were looking into um, alternatives to it because it seems like, uh, yeah, you know, you're killing off the microorganisms. That's very, very good. But um, there's there's a, a repercussions to that. Well, certainly. I mean, I know um, years ago uh, in Hawaii we had um, excessive rains and because people were on septic systems, uh, the water was being contaminated. There was just so much of it. And so their solution was to add excessive amounts of chlorine to the water to mm. make it quote unquote safe. And we didn't really even notice what was happening with it, you know, cause you, you become accustomed to it. Um, you can smell it actually when you're showering, if they've put a lot in it. Mm. And um, we had a farm and everything started turning yellow. I mean, dreadful oh. yellow. And so we had the water tested and it had super high levels of chlorine and, and people in the United States can, if they're on municipal water, can have their water tested. And it's kind of scary when you look at uh, everything that's in there. Um, but it was like, well, we need to put a filter on the, f the water that was going to the farm to all the plants. But, you know, a filter can cost you anywhere from 300 to to $1,000. Mm -hmm. And so I don't know if it really deals with the issue at hand. Mm. You know, maybe it just remedies one aspect, but then there's so many others. Yeah, it's true. Well, one of the scary things, too, with the whole water thing is that they've started finding uh, pharmaceutical drugs in water. And basically what happens is people take these drugs and then they urinate and that goes back into the water supply and there's leftover drugs in there. And that actually ends up going into the ecosystem and into the water table. And 
So we're probably getting a good dose of pharmaceutical drugs with our uh, glass of water as well. I remember there was a controversy a while back, I think it was back in like the 70s or something like that, that they were finding traces of the birth control pill. Um, so basically estrogen in the water. Um, and there was some concern that it would, you know, have, well, I mean, you know, estrogen can lead to uh, breast cancer and other types of cancer. It can have a feminizing effect on men. So there's all kinds of, you know, detrimental effects to having any of these kinds of like they've even found like antidepressants and other psychiatric medications and things like that like talking talk about having a drugged populace yeah with the fluoride yeah with the fluoride plus the antidepressants yeah well in in uh the united states you know i think people are really uh they feel like well we have what the clean water act we have um you know these other organizations that are supposed to BP or the EPA that are supposed to have safe water safe drinking water act uh, these organizations are supposed to regulate things like that so toxic chemicals pharmaceuticals disinfectants plastics heavy metals and um, basically people are being misled to believe that their drinking water is safe because it meets these quote-unquote government standards mm -hmm. but uh you know the epa's allowable concentrations of contaminants in your drinking water a safe is kind of a myth because they're not really taking into account the cumulative effect of all the things like you were just saying mm -hmm. yeah and, and so it's really hard to to track those cumulative cumulative effects on people's health unless there's like a, an acute exposure like what happened in Flint so mm. there was an acute exposure they started seeing you know that this lead was probably causing issues mainly uh, uh, learning disabilities right but mm -hmm. um, if you're if it's not being acknowledged that these chemicals accumulate in your blood and your fatty tissues and other parts of your body and that that overload starts to affect us yeah and as you said that you're not just being exposed by by drinking it you're being exposed by cooking with it and swimming with it and showering and brushing your teeth and mm -hmm. so it's just insane it's a basically a silent pandemic yeah yeah i mean when we look at things like the rise of uh um, autoimmune conditions and like chronic disease uh, numbers just keep on going higher and higher. You know, I would be completely unsurprised if it turns out that this was a major contributor to these kinds of things. You know, just not having clean drinking water. And it is a complete, it's like you said, like the whole thing about the Clean, clean Water Act and, you know, the, the, this doesn't just apply to the United States. And, you know, any, any country that's doing kind of industrial agriculture or has industry of any kind is probably dealing with this same kind of issue. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's just, it, 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 it's, it's almost like this illusion that's placed over things where it's like, oh, yeah, everything's fine. You know, the water is clean. You can drink it right out of the tap. Don't worry about it. And... In, in reality, it's like the you, you really don't know. 
it's like even people, you know, I know a lot of people who live kind of outside of cities and stuff like that who aren't on municipal water, they're on well water. A lot of times we'll feel safe because of that. But the thing is, like, there's still tons of stuff that can get into your water. Like, I think agricultural pollution in particular. Yeah. Well, I shared that on the show last week about um, glyphosate. Mm-hmm. You know, so there's this push to get it out of the food. But I fear that the contamination is already done, that mm-hmm. it now is in the water table. And especially if you are on a well and you're in an agricultural area, all that stuff is going to sink into the water table eventually. I mean, it will be filtered through the soil and rocks and whatnot, but um, they're not testing for it. You know, the, the the Safe Drinking Water Act was actually enacted in 1974, and it was supposed to focus on insurance, ensuring the public drinking water meets appropriate safety standards, right? And mm-hmm. then in uh, two years before that, the Clean Water Act was uh, regulating pollution in lakes and rivers and other bodies of water. But as we know, and what we've shared uh, in the past, is big business can get away with murder, essentially. Mm-hmm. They just bribe and pay off the right people. But the Environmental Working Group, they um, they test water and uh, they have a... a, a basically a document called unregulated contaminant monitoring rule and you can look it up and they um, they require the EPA to review each national primary drinking water regulation at least once every six years and then revise it and they don't like you said you know uh, they only test for 81 contaminants out of thousands So they're kind of dropping the ball and they're, you know, really underfunded now. It's not really a priority and it just is getting worse. Well, not only that, but um, local um, water testing, in a lot of cases, they know how to fudge the numbers Mm -hmm. to avoid, um, you know, they can hide spikes in things. And this was in particular, there was a a report, um, it just came out like a month ago um, from the Environmental Working Group, and they were talking about, you know, um, atrazine, the the herbicide, uh, known endocrine disruptor, uh, reproductive disruptor, leads to preterm births, fetal deformities. Um, So basically what they were showing was that these municipalities, I'm, I'm assuming it's the municipalities, actually. I'm not sure who it was, actually, who was testing the, um, the water, but they could actually, um, the EPA allows them to uh, um, report averages um, so they can average out over the whole year. So when the farming season is in its peak and it's there spraying all kinds of this stuff, they can hide the spikes that happen during that time because in winter it's not being done. So if they can report an average then they don't actually see that at certain times it's actually over like well over the amount um that's allowed to be in there and also there was reports of uh some uh testers actually avoiding that time altogether like they don't test during farming season to avoid um showing that there's spikes in these levels yeah actually we um we have a clip with um, 
What's Dr. his name? Tyrone Hayes. That's it, Tyrone Hayes. And uh, he talks about um, atrazine and the uh, pollution of the water table and its effect. So we can play that now. This is a pond in Lake Nabugabo in Uganda where I started to think that this agricultural runoff might not only affect the frogs and the fish, but also the other animals that are drinking out of the water, including the humans that collect their drinking and cooking water from this same source. Because see, we all make estrogen in the exact same way and use it in the same way. The connection to contaminants in water might not be so obvious for us, that this is my village, but things like Erin Brockovich's story and things like Flint, Michigan remind us that we don't necessarily have the resources that we think we have, the clean sources of water. A colleague of mine showed, because I don't study humans, I had to work with other people on this, that if you look at men in Columbia, Missouri, and compare the atrazine in their urine, men who have atrazine in their urine have a low sperm count and can't get their wives pregnant. And by the way, this is the same amount of atrazine, 0.1 parts per billion, that we're reusing to chemically castrate and feminize our frogs. Another colleague showed, and I've mashed the data down now, because these are atrazine levels of men who work in the fields in California, and these are atrazine levels of men who apply atrazine in California. 2,400 parts per billion. They have 24,000 times the atrazine in their urine than we use to chemically castrate frogs and fish. 24,000 times what we know is already having a negative impact on men in Columbia, Missouri. One of these guys could pee in a bucket and I could dilute it 24,000 times and use the atrazine in their urine to chemically castrate and feminize 24,000 buckets of 30 tadpoles each. Then a little boy who likes frogs learns phrases like environmental justice because most of these individuals are Latinx or in California, Mexican, Mexican-American. And then I thought about the impact that increasing estrogen would have on humans because the estrogen, atrazine has the same effect in human cells. If you take human cancer cells, and we've done some of this work, that don't normally make aromatase or estrogen and give them astrazine, they start making estrogen. Just like we've shown in fish and frogs and rats and reptiles and in birds. What's more is if you look at prostate cancer, there's an 8.4-fold increase in prostate cancer in their factory where they make atrazine in a community that's 80% black, 80% African-American. There are studies showing that there's correlations between atrazine in their drinking water and breast cancer incidents in women in Kentucky. And that's just a correlation, but their own laboratory showed in 1994 that if you give rats atrazine, you increase the incidence of mammary cancer or breast cancer above animals that aren't exposed. This is an interesting problem because breast cancer, the number one cancer in women, is estrogen-dependent. And this aromatase that I've talked about produces the estrogen during breast cancer that stimulates those breast cancers to grow and divide and turn into tumors and spread. In fact, the role of aromatase is so important in breast cancer that the number one treatment for breast cancer right now is a chemical called letrozole. It works by knocking out aromatase, decreasing estrogen, so that even if you have cancerous cells, they don't grow and turn into a tumor. That drug, though, has to work against the 80 million pounds of atrazine that we're using every year. That's the number one contaminant of drinking water that does exactly the opposite. I got in trouble because I pointed out that Novartis Oncology in the year 2000 offered treatments for cancers that range from breast cancer. So the same company that gave us 80 million pounds of this contaminant associated with breast cancer was also selling a chemical that does the opposite to treat breast cancer. Yeah, they, they weren't too happy about me pointing that out. I became concerned. I'm just a little boy who likes, fro likes frogs, but I became concerned because if you look at 13 the 
top 13 cancers you're going to get in this country? Blacks, African-Americans are more likely to get 11 out of the 13 and more likely to die from 13 out of 13. Biology? My colleagues who are experts in cancers tell me that the less than 30% of cancer can be explained by genetics. That means that when the doctor tells you that you're going to get breast cancer, more likely if your, bro- your sister, your aunt, or somebody in your family has it, they're not telling you you have bad genes necessarily. They're telling you that you've been exposed to the same crap as the rest of your family. Because if you're a minority, if you're an immigrant, if you're first generation, if you're low income, you're more likely to live in and more likely to work in areas where you're exposed to chemicals that we know are associated with adverse health outcomes. What's more is with the exception of HeLa cells, the the cancer cells that we use to study cancer don't come from minorities. So even if we find the cure, Coleman, it may not be applicable to people who would need it the most. So I think what's happened is my interest in this aquatic organism has taught me a great deal about this aquatic organism. Because we all start out as aquatic in the amniotic fluid. And these chemicals that I study in my tadpoles can cross the placenta. In fact, we now know that you, that your children will be exposed to over 300 synthetic chemicals before they leave the womb. And most of them, we have no idea what the biological impact is. For atrazine, we do know from rats, which are a proxy for us, that if you give rats atrazine, an EPA lab showed those rats are more likely to have an abortion. Of those rats that don't have an abortion, the sons are born with prostate disease. Of those rats that don't abort, the daughters are born with impaired mammary development such that when they grow up, their offspring experience retarded growth and development. And it was these studies that moved me to most, that made me realize I can't just be a little boy who likes frogs. Because see that rat on the bottom? That rat on the bottom never saw atrazine. The rat on the bottom was affected by atrazine that its grandmother was exposed to. The rat on the bottom never saw atrazine. The rat on the bottom was affected by atrazine that its grandmother was exposed to. So when I think about my little girl, my son, the fact that my grandchildren, that your grandchildren, could be affected by chemicals that we're using today, it moved me in a very different way than just a little boy who likes frogs. It's just a correlation, but we already know, studies have already been done by the Center for Disease Control and others, that if you get pregnant doing peak atrazine contamination, you're more likely to have babies with birth defects, including malformed genitals in the male babies. The EPA has acknowledged this, but they say, quote, a monetary value is assigned to disease impairments and shortened lives and weighed against the benefits of keeping a chemical in use. A monetary value. If you look at California, I'm often giving this talk outside of California. We're the fifth or seventh, depends on who you talk to, largest economy in the world because of agriculture, not because of tech or, or, or Hollywood. We produce 50% of the U.S.'s food. Half of the U.S.'s food comes from California. As a result, we use more pesticides than any other state, and 90% of the workers are Latinx. If I put in red here the top 10 counties for agriculture, These are the counties, the 30% that makes us the fifth largest economy in the world. What if I plot onto that the 30 poorest towns in California? Environmental justice. So the people who make us the fifth largest economy in the world are the same people who are paying that cost that the EPA talks about. And so when I thought about this as a little boy who likes frogs, it motivated me 
to cross the line, so to speak. Crossing that line cost me. The chemical manufacturers set out to discredit me with personal attacks. They said, hey, he's biologist turned activist. Turned activist. A turn. You can't be a scientist and an activist. They tried to discredit me, but when they were interviewed by New Yorker magazine, they said it simply wasn't true. I must be crazy. I must be making it up. They said, and I quote, I am troubled by a suggestion that we have ever tried to discredit anyone. Our focus has always been on communicating the science and setting the record straight. I am troubled at the suggestion that we've ever tried to discredit anyone. Where on earth would I have gotten the idea that they tried to discredit me? Well, it turns out they settled out of court, a $105 million lawsuit, and all of their secret, their secret like, how are we going to get Tyrone notes, came out from their meetings. Their strategy became public. And look what the first goal on the science was in their program. <laughs> Where on earth did anybody get the idea that they would ever try to discredit anyone? I had to make a change. Academia, my advisor told me, don't be an advocate. Let the science speak for itself. But I had to think about this, that we're being rewarded in the ivory tower, promoted for publishing things that the public doesn't have access to. I changed my mind about this philosophy because Syngenta, the company, says on their website they assume no obligation to update forward-looking statements to reflect actual results. Pardon my language, but who says shit like that? <laughs> but what concerned me more is that the EPA says that the ultimate decision of whether or not to ban atrazine is much bigger than science. It weighs in public opinion. And I thought the EPA is counting on my mom, the EPA is counting on you to help it make its decision, and I'm publishing my work in journals that you can't get in Barnes and Noble. We have to change the way we do things in the ivory tower. There's a philosophy by a great thinker that goes like this. Those who have the privilege to know have the duty to act. This guy said that, by the way. And I didn't grow up privileged. I don't know about you. All I know is that now I'm here. Now, you are here. You are privileged, and you have a duty. And I've reasoned that we can change the past, but only if we act now, while it is still the future. Yes. Okay. Couldn't have said it better. Yeah, totally. And incidentally, when he said who said that quote, it was uh, Albert Einstein. Mm. Yeah, I don't remember the exact quote, but it was something like, those who have the privilege to know have the duty to act. Yeah. And for our listeners who may not know the history of Tyrone Hayes, I put up an article in the chat about it, but he essentially works at UC Berkeley, and he was hired by Syngenta, to test atrazine on frogs. And he, and he wrote an article for Mother Jones many years back called The Frog of War. And they really went after him. I mean, they did try and discredit him and say his science was unsound uh, after they paid him to do it, you know, and he reported the truth. And since then, he, he has been an activist, I guess you would say. Mm-hmm trying to share this information because um, a lot of people might not know, but Syngenta was purchased 
or there was a big merger, kind of like the Monsanto Bayer merger, and uh, they are now Chem China, and they've kind of dropped out of the news yet again. But that that's the second leading herbicide that's used in the United States. Yeah. You don't hear much about it, actually, atrazine, because glyphosate kind of gets all the bad press. Mm -hmm. But, um, yeah, it's uh, it's a really bad one, too. Yeah, as one of our chatters said, he's the one who turned the frogs gay. I don't know if you've ever heard uh, Alex Jones ranting about that, but uh, atrazine is the one that, that causes the um, feminization of male frogs, essentially. And it was crazy, too. In that that same talk, he was taught he was showing slides of uh, the testes of male frogs actually producing eggs. Yeah, and some of them had both ovaries and um, yeah. I mean both sex hormones, and not just one set, but multiple sets. Yeah. And they're yeah. A, a keystone species, right? So that's why he studies them because mm -hmm. it just takes minute amount of toxins to affect them. Yeah, it's it's pretty crazy. So what other chemicals did we want to talk about? <laughs> <laughs> well, we could talk about microplastics. Ooh. <laughs> yeah. So basically, that's been making the news recently because um, they've been finding microplastics everywhere. And microplastics are basically like small fibers that come from plastic um and it might just be from like plastic like a, you know a water bottle or a plastic whatever um but it also is in things like clothing um a lot of the synthetic fabrics that exist these days actually have plastic kind of uh woven in with the fabric um i know yoga pants are supposed to be like some of the worst <laughs> offenders for that but apparently, like some of the, like the the microplastic fibers are like everywhere. They're in the water. They're in the air. I remember reading something about they estimated it was something like eighty thousand tons of microplastic dust falls on a city in, in any given year. Yeah, it's in ninety percent of table salt. We talked a little bit mm -hmm. about it in our salt show. Mm -hmm. And they move up the food chain. So especially if you eat seafood, um, you're going to have microplastic contamination. And um, we did do a show on it called Not to Get Drastic, but the plastic right. is making us plastic. So it talked, <laughs> talked a lot about the, <laughs> uh, the microplastic issue. and. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because know, as plastic doesn't break down very well, and even when it does break down, it leaves these little microplastics everywhere you know it's in our food it's in our water it's in the air we're breathing it in it's in our bodies and we don't really know the full extent of what that actually does to us i mean apparently microplastics are very good for harboring um bacteria or microorganisms um that they'll actually latch onto it and ride it around so as we're getting all this microplastic we're probably getting some infections as well It is so concerning. Yeah. Apparently, yeah, I was saying, like, dry dryers apparently are really bad because as your clothes go through 
the dryer you know you look at the lint trap afterwards and you see all that lint that's there like a lot of that is plastic and a lot of that actually just gets ejected because you know you've got the outflow of your dryer just blowing out of the house and um a lot of that uh air coming out of there is going to have microplastics in with it not to mention those dryer sheets i'm sure i don't know if they have microplastics but those things have got to be toxic yeah, I mean, and it's what, 40, 400 million tons of plastic are produced globally each year. And it's estimated that one third of all plastic waste ends up in soil and fresh water. So that's not even, you know, the ocean. Mm -hmm. And um, most plastic degenerates into what they call nurdles is one of the names that they talk about with uh, ocean contamination but it's basically smaller than five millimeters hmm. so uh in this one article called the underestimated threat of land-based microplastic pollution terrestrial microplastic pollution is actually much higher than marine microplastic pollution hmm. so they say Sewage is uh, an important factor in the distribution of microplastics, and 80 to 90 percent of the particles contained in sewage are from garment fibers, and they hmm. stay in that sludge. How much? 80 percent. 80 to 90 percent really? of particles contained in sewage. Uh, That's crazy. Yeah. 80 to 90 percent. Yeah. I mean that just that just shows you how much is just going through our entire environment like in the air in the in the food wow yeah 90 percent what he mentioned about California I found really fascinating um, because you know they produce 50 percent of the food for the United States um, but one thing that they were doing in California was using sewage sludge <clears throat> to fertilize food like human sewage yeah oh my god and um <laughs> it was actually <clears throat> products being sold at whole foods and uh there was an article I'll put it in the chat it was called don't ask don't tell concerned citizen uncovers whole foods policy on selling food grown with sewage sludge. Oh. <laughs> uh, I just, I don't know, maybe grow your own. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. Well, because California is essentially like a drought yeah. American state, and where they're growing, where he mentioned in central California, is dry they, they don't get a lot of water there i mean they maybe get 10 days of water a year you know they are diverting a lot of water from the colorado but uh, the colorado river but i mean lord have mercy yeah because just think okay what does the average american eat and then think about that being used to fertilize food like you're talking about like all the the pharmaceutical medications and all that kind of stuff like oh my god that's really yeah, disgusting that to think about bioaccumulates you know i mean depending on the kind of vegetable you're eating it if you're eating like lettuce that's just going straight into the lettuce 
And then they're surprised when they have to recall romaine lettuce for E. coli infection. Yeah. (sighs) All right. What other good news do we have? (laughs) (laughs) Well, uh, what about um, microorganisms? I mean, we talked a little bit about that with the uh, Flint, Michigan thing. Mm -hmm. But um, there was a case recently where um, a woman used, it was a woman from Seattle, and she was using um, just regular tap water to do her neti pot. And I don't know if all the listeners know what a neti pot is, but it's basically like a little, it looks kind of like a little teapot, and it's used for doing nasal irrigation to clean out your sinuses. And she was just using regular uh, tap water to do that, which they always say don't do that. Um, And she ended up getting a brain-eating amoeba called Balamuthia. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right. Uh, and she ended up dying, actually. It, um, it was, uh, the, the surgeon said when they, they cut her open, because they saw it on an MRI, um, and thought that it was a tumor. So a couple of days later, they were doing surgery to get it out, and the surgeon was saying that there was a section of her brain that was just mush, because apparently these uh, microorganisms, they eat the cells, but they also excrete something that <clears throat> almost like jellifies proteins, um, I guess, so that they can eat it. But um, this whole section of her brain was actually just mush because, um, yeah, because she got uh, this brain-eating amoeba. Yeah, and they're found in warm freshwater pools, um, but that they... Say that it gets in, up your nose and into your brain, but then your brain will start to fight against it. So your immune system launches a counterattack by flooding the brain with immune cells, causing inflammation and swelling. Um, of the 132 people known to have been infected with these since uh, 1962 in the U.S., only three survived. Wow. Yeah. Like they, they were saying that basically it's it's not the amoeba necessarily that's going to kill you. Although, you know, given enough time, I'm sure it would. But uh, because the brain or the body mounts this immune defense and causes all this uh, um, inflammation, that's actually what usually ends up killing people because it's trying so hard to kind of um, fight the infection. I don't think they really have a way of dealing with it. I mean, apparently it's pretty rare. But um, it, uh, yeah, they don't they don't have like a, a a firm understanding of what they can actually do about that if they find a person is infected. But uh, it's not just from neti pots that you can get this. Apparently, like you were saying, you can get it from swimming, you can get it from you know in the shower, all those kinds of things. And it can actually it doesn't necessarily have to get to your brain too because there's other types of amoeba that. Um, can actually cause uh, skin infections, um, like flesh-eating bacteria. There was an incident where uh, a man who got a tattoo and then went swimming in the Gulf of Mexico uh, before it was fully healed, ended up getting a skin infection. And he actually eventually ended up dying, although they treated He did go to the hospital and they treated it, but he actually died about a month later from complications. 
And the guy, this particular case, the guy was already uh, fairly weak because he had had um, liver disease. Um, what was it? Was it hepatitis? Was already compromised. Yeah. Yeah. But nonetheless, that's, um, that's a, a possibility. I mean, they say, you know, when you've had a tattoo, because that is essentially a wound, um, you're not supposed to go into the water until it's fully healed, which can take like, you know, a couple of months. The type of bacteria he was um, infected with is V. Vulnificus, vulnificus. And so that can cause um, all kinds of problems. So yeah, even like to, to the extent that uh, people can't just swim in the ocean anymore, <laughs> you got to be careful. Uh, if you've got any open wounds or anything like that, particularly if you're going in the, the Gulf of Mexico, it's like it's not a good idea. Yeah. I mean, it's just, again, the pollution of these sources. I mean, when my children were little, um, you know, we had a doctor that would say, oh, if they have a wound, you know, just have them go swim in the ocean and uh, mm. the salt and uh, ocean water will clean it out, you know. And then a few years later, they kept getting an outbreak of what's called impetigo. Ah, uh, yeah. Uh, Basically, you know, they say children get it from touching toilet seats or whatnot. And uh, the doctor said, well, we're at a point now with the septic system runoff and agriculture runoff and whatnot that I'd say the ocean is the last place that you want to go into with nah. open pores. You know, so, and that doesn't even touch the whole Fukushima radiation thing, but we'll save that yeah. for a different show. Oh, God. So, maybe we should talk about what people can actually do about it. Yeah, that might be good. We got to find some light at the end of the tunnel here. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I mean, there are filtration systems that you can get that can take out a lot. I think... Um, the reverse osmosis is probably at least one of the better ones, if not the best one. And what that basically does is passes your water through a membrane that has only tiny little micro um, holes in it to allow the water through. And it filters out most other stuff. I know it does get out like, you know, the chemicals like chlorine and fluoride and that sort of thing. Very few filters will actually take out fluoride, but reverse osmosis does. Mm -hmm. Um pharmaceutical medications that sort of thing it will take out any um microorganisms it's supposed to take out as well i don't know if it's small enough to take out all the microplastics to be honest yeah i'm not uh, entirely sure about that um so that's one possibility uh the unfortunate thing is that uh reverse osmosis uh, filters are kind of expensive although it is just kind of like a an upfront charge um that you then will benefit from and i think you only have to change the filters once a year or something like that um there is also distillation um which is basically just a unit that will boil your water and then it collects the steam um I know that it will take out chlorine, it will take out other chemicals, pharmaceuticals, that kind of thing. It'll take out metals. Um, you're supposed to combine it with a carbon filter as well. Most of the units actually have a carbon filter at the end, just as a kind of secondary precaution. 
Um, they, I don't, again, I don't know about like microplastics and things. Microplastics are so new and I haven't looked at water filters in quite a while. Um, I would assume that it'll take those out as well, but again, I'm not entirely sure. I guess it will basically take out anything that's lighter than, or sorry, heavier than the steam that's collecting. Um, what else is there? There are other fancy kind of filters as well, uh, different technologies. I've seen one, there was a, a brand called Seagull that they would actually recommend for things like well water because it would get all the microorganisms and metals and industrial waste and stuff. Um, fluoride as well. Yeah. I have one, and I can't remember the name of it. Maybe I'll go look here in a minute. It is, um, it's called, a, I think it's called an aqua rain, and it was specifically designed if you lived on water catch. So a lot of mm. people in the United States don't have municipal water, especially in rural areas, so they use catchment tanks to catch water and those do get a lot of bacteria and whatnot in there and this uh, filter was created that if you had river water you lived on a river and you wanted to drink the water that you could use it and it's sterling silver and clay filters mm. in there and I don't know how, how much like you were saying with the microplastics but I know we are on well water and it has turned our sinks blue which oh my I think god copper and mm -hmm. i was tasting it you could really taste it and that's really a, a distinct sign that there's something in the water when you can taste it when it leaves like almost a metallic taste in your yeah. mouth yeah and so i got it out it's kind of a survival thing that we have that and i started uh pure you know just making batches of water I also recommend storing in glass and not plastic mm -hmm. <laughs> because yeah. of the the uh, BPA, bisphenol A, and you know all this other stuff. Um, and then with the, how to clean it is you need to about every um, ten thousand gallons or something you would take out the filters and scrub them down. So you scrub off a little bit of the clay, and that's supposed to help. I don't know if it helps. <laughs> mm. Comforting, I guess. Yeah. In that sense. Well, one of our chatters asked, can most water contaminants be excreted through the, the skin during sweating? Very good question. I'm not entirely sure. I think that in general, they're not. Um, I think that uh, they do have a tendency to kind of bioaccumulate. That being said... I know if you're doing something like far infrared sauna therapy or near infrared sauna therapy where you are kind of um, sweating, um, that is kind of more efficient at um, stirring things up and getting them out of the system um, because you're kind of activating mitochondria and getting really getting things going and having a good sweat. So maybe if you're doing sauna therapy, um, it might, but... Um, how good it is at doing that, I'm not entirely sure. Um, apparently, doing sauna therapy can be better than just relying on your body to excrete things like through the urine or the feces. So, yeah. 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 <laughs> I mean, these are the things, it's, it's really unfortunate that we live in a world where it's left up to the individual 
to do this. And that the authorities not only don't do anything about it, but don't tell anybody about it, don't recommend these things, maybe even mock them in some cases. You know, oh, you're just a stupid hippie, blah, 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 blah. But, um, yeah, it's kind of, unfortunately, it's the world we live in, um, where it's kind of like an individual, first of all, has to encounter the knowledge and then decide to do something about it. Yeah. Well, and another thing is, is you know, this whole idea of the precautionary principle, I mean, it's a little mm. late for that now, I would imagine. But if, you know, these companies that make all these toxic shit, <laughs> Tyrone Hayes said it, so. <laughs> actually gave a rat's ass about it, you know, they might, you know, like he said, like anyone that is concerned about the future of their offspring would think maybe this isn't the best choice to do. But I, I know I'm dreaming. That's my Christmas well, wish. You know? It's kind of unbelievable, really, when you think about it. It's kind of like this system is set up where people, like it pays more for them to game the system than anything else. Like yeah. it doesn't pay to care about this kind yeah. of thing. Like companies are, like the, the system we're in right now, it's like the bottom line is all that matters. So it's like it doesn't matter that we're poisoning this generation and all these future generations because our bottom line is all that matters. Yeah. Well, for those that uh, are interested in what the precautionary principle is and uh, UNESCO, United Nations Educational Science and Cultural Organization, described the precautionary principle can be summed up this way. When human activities may lead to morally unacceptable harm that is scientifically plausible but uncertain, action shall be taken to avoid or diminish that harm. Yeah. And how many how many people are actually living by that rule? How many exactly. industries? How many companies? Yeah, I'd say that it, it's a great idea, but nobody is doing it. Even the medical system, they don't do that. Yeah, they're supposed to like the whole doctor's oath: first do no harm. They yeah. don't do that. Yeah, one of our sh our chatters said, "You got to think about the shareholders." Yeah, exactly. But don't think about their health. Just their pockets. <laughs> well, it's the normalization of pathology, you know. I yeah. mean, let's just make sure and deal with that fossil fuel issue and don't deal with the water being contaminated. Yeah, that's oh, that's the thing. That's what pisses me off so much about the whole global warming thing. Like, on the one hand, I'm kind of like, okay, you want to believe a bunch of bullshit, go ahead. But the fact of the matter is, it's just such a distraction from real issues, like the water. Yeah. It's like, how can you, you know, you're just so concerned about putting carbon into the environment that you don't care about, like, all the toxic, ugh. It's well, just... and you think about all that energy behind, you know, people in just in their, com starting at a community level. Just mm -hmm getting your water tested and then writing letters and saying, you know, this needs to be addressed, this needs to be addressed. If people put that same energy just in their own neighborhoods, mm -hmm. you may actually see
something change. I mean, Flint, Michigan was like that. Like, it took people just outraged and not saying we're we're just going to pretend like this isn't happening. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. So stop worrying about carbon. Cow farts. <laughs> yeah. Stop worrying about cow farts. Exactly. Jeez. Your Prius won't save you. <laughs> They end up polluting more anyway. Jeez. Well, we could go on and on for more hours, but maybe we'll shape. We were going <laughs> to share about fracking, but I don't know. I think that's just another. That might be a whole nother show in and of its own. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Just uh, look up some uh, videos of people lighting their tap water on fire. And there is a documentary about fracking. Let me see if I can find the name of it. Um, is it What the Frack? No, that, that's another one, though. Mm. But uh, I can't remember now. I'll, I'll see if I can remember here. I just get so worked up about this. And <laughs> mm. yeah. I'll have to find it after the pet health segment. Well, on that note, why don't we go to our pet health segment for today, where Zoya is going to tell us about how to get your cat to drink more water. Mm. Hello, and welcome to the pet health segment of the Health and Wellness Show. This week's topic is water and how to make your cat to drink more of it. As it happens, since cats started to eat kibble or dry food, all kinds of kidney diseases in cats skyrocketed. It is also because cats naturally don't drink that much. They get the water when they eat their prey fresh and almost whole. But now we have a lot of cats that not only are fed inappropriate diets, many of them, especially all kinds of uh, purebred ones, refuse to eat natural food. So considering this situation, here are several tips to help your kitty to drink more water. Have a great weekend and goodbye. Does your cat have a condition like kidney failure or diabetes which means they need to drink more water? Are you just worried that your cat is being fed a dry kibble and you don't seem to see them drink much? Well, it can be really difficult to know how to get your cat to drink more water. In this video, I'll give you my top 10 tips on how to encourage cats to drink and really increase their water consumption. Hi, I'm Dr. Alex from OurPetsHealth.com, helping you and your pet to live healthier, happier lives. So, if we're just meeting for the first time, consider subscribing and hitting that bell notification to allow me to continue to help you and your cat. Cats are really desert animals, and as a result, are really good at conserving water. They are really great at extracting the moisture from their food, and so actually they don't really need to drink very much in order to survive. Now, this evolution also means that they tend to have a low thirst drive, which is why you often won't see your cat actually drinking. Now, this is also why getting your cat to drink more water can be really challenging. The problem with this is that if your cat becomes unwell for any other reason, or if they have a disease that compromises their ability to conserve water, then they can very quickly become dehydrated. Examples of this are diabetes, kidney disease, and liver disease. Dehydration can be very dangerous. It compromises overall health and potentially makes their condition much, much worse. So what can we do to change this? Well, here are my top 10 tips for how to get your cat to drink more water. 
So at number one, is simply switch to wet food. Now, did you realize that 80% of wet food is water? So if you're currently feeding your cat a dry food, which typically is about 10% water, then you can see how a simple diet change can really make a huge difference in the amount of water that your cat takes on board. Now, clearly a diet change is not always as simple as just putting it in a bowl. Cats are notoriously fussy, so if you do struggle with this, then make sure you check out my next video, which will help you change your cat's diet. Now, if your vet has advised that a special diet is fed to your cat, then there's nearly always a wet version that you could choose instead of a biscuit. There will also always be alternatives should your pet not really like what you choose for them in the first place. Okay, at number two, I've got to refresh water bowls regularly. If water's left sitting around for a long time in your cat's bowl, it becomes less and less likely that they'll actually want to drink it. So the flavor will change. It might become full of bugs or dirt. Other pets may have drunk from the bowl and none of these are really acceptable situations for your cat. This means that you should refresh your cat's water and also clean their water bowl every day. Now it's important though that when you clean their bowl that there's no residue from any dish soap used um, as this would really again change the taste of the water and put your cat off drinking from that bowl. Keeping the water in the fridge may also help as many cats will prefer cold water um, and then by regularly refreshing their bowl they'll often have nice cold water more often. Okay number three is to change the water type. Now to you and I water is generally water most of it tastes more or less the same um, and very often we're adding a flavor to it anyway. Well cats can be very particular about the type of water they like and they're able to pick up and object to the subtle differences in flavors that depend on where the water has come from. The tap water in your area might have too many chemicals or be too hard. Using filtered water or trying a different bottled water may mean that they start drinking more. Collecting rainwater is another option that is pretty easy and free depending on where you live. So at number four, I've got to add some flavor. Now, as I've already mentioned, we often add flavor to our water in the form of juice, coffee or tea. And I'm not suggesting that you give these to your cat, but instead you could try adding some tuna juice maybe or boil up some chicken and add the water from this to your cat's water. You could try something else that your cat might like. Just be sure to avoid anything salty or that has had salt added to it, such as stock cubes. Now this liquid, it can be given undiluted, but you'll probably find that adding just a small amount to your cat's water will be enough for them to really enjoy the flavor and encourage them to drink. The leftover liquid doesn't need to be thrown away. Instead, you could pour it into ice cube trays and freeze them. And this has several benefits. It means that you only have to make up this, um, this water additive maybe once a month, which makes it a really easy task. It also then means that when you defrost them, it will provide a nice cold water for your cat, which as we've already mentioned, they might really enjoy. Now, if you find that your cat is happy with plain water, but just likes it cool, then you can simply add plain ice cubes as a simple solution. So at number five, I've got to use different food bowls. So by now you'll have noticed that cat's tastes are super sensitive and even very minor differences in flavor can really make a huge difference. Now, one big flavor determining factor is bowl type. So glass, ceramic, plastic, and metal bowls, they'll give the water a slight taste, especially in hot weather um, and if it's left unrefreshed for some time. Now glass and china affects flavor much less, which is why we prefer drinking from them as well. So to find out which bowl type your cat prefers, you can simply put water in a bowl of each type and see which one your cat chooses. If their bowl is plastic, but they always drink from a glass of water by your bed, then you can probably already guess which one your cat will prefer. As well as bowl type, bowl shape can also play a role. Now some cats really hate it when their whiskers touch the side of the bowl when eating or drinking. 
And some people think that this can actually cause pain when it's repeated over a long period of time. But regardless of this, using a wide shallow bowl that is completely full will avoid this problem and may make all the difference in getting your cat to drink more water. So at number six, I've got running water. Now a change of bowl might not be enough for some cats. Have you noticed that your cat likes drinking from the tap? Well, they are not alone and many cats actually do prefer to drink water from a running source. Now, unless you live by a stream or choose to leave the tap running all the time, this can really be difficult to provide um, and make sure it's always available for your cat. So the solution for this, and one that works in a lot of cats, is to get your cat a pet drinking water fountain. Now, these are indiscreet indoor fountains that are designed specifically for your cat to drink from. And once your cat gets used to having one, you might be surprised how often you actually find them at their water bowl. A cat water fountain can really make a huge difference. So at number seven is to add water to your pet's food. Now, whether your pet is fed kibble or a wet food, adding extra water is a great way to get them to take more in without relying on them actually drinking. Now, much like changing their diet though, adding water may put your cat off eating. And so the best chance of success is by taking, taking things slowly. Start off by just really adding a few drops of water. And then over the period of a couple of weeks or a month, just slowly increase this amount. And before long, you will have added a significant amount of water to their food and really increased the amount of water that they're drinking. Remember though, that wet food spoils sooner than kibble. And so it should not be left down for extended periods of time, especially in hot weather. Okay, so at number eight is water location. Now, competition for resources is a big cause of stress in cats living in a multi-cat household. If there are not enough bowls, um, and if they don't get on as well as you think they do with their housemates, then they may be too nervous to drink as often as they would like. So as a general rule, there should be one more water bowl than there are cats in the house. So for example, if you have three cats, you should have four water bowls. Where you put them also has an effect. They should not be right by the litter tray. Instead, they should be in a quiet location that ideally should have a good view of their surroundings so that your cat can't be crept up on by another cat so that they're not always just looking around nervously. If you have more than one cat, then also check out these other ways to reduce stress levels in my other videos. Okay, so at number nine is to increase the number of meals. Very often um, after a cat eats something, they will have a small drink. So having food down all the time and feeding your cat ad lib where they simply help themselves may increase their water intake. It's not though a good idea because it will generally make them fat, which in itself can be very dangerous. Now instead, if you're home, try giving them just regular small meals. Now it's a bit more labor intensive this, but it can help if it fits into your family's lifestyle. Okay, so at number 10 and my final point is to give subcutaneous fluids. So for some cats with certain conditions, no matter how much they drink, they're just not able to keep up with the amount they are losing in the urine. So an example of this would be more advanced kidney disease. Um, and in these situations, your vet may suggest that they're given fluids under their skin. Now this is not as scary as it sounds, and it's very well tolerated in many cats. It can make all the difference in giving your cat an excellent quality of life for just that little bit longer before their disease becomes too bad and untreatable. Now there's an excellent article and video that I'll link down below by the International Cat Care Council, and this gives you all the details of how to give subcutaneous fluids to your cat. Your vet, of course, will also discuss this option with you, and if they feel it's suitable for your pet, as well as demonstrate how to do it at home. 
So implementing just a few of these tips should make all the difference in getting your cat to drink more water. If your pet has a condition that is prone to making them become dehydrated, then increasing their water intake might make all the difference in ensuring they have an excellent quality of life as well as extending their life. So have you made any changes that have meant your cat has started drinking more? I'd really love to hear them in the comments down below just to help other people who may be reading them. Also, sign up to my newsletter to make sure you don't miss out on the future content and to get your free copy of my weight and diet calculator. So until next time, I'm Dr. Alex from Our Pets Health, because they're family. Those are some well-hydrated goats. Clean stream water. <laughs> Somewhere in the remote part of the world. So I remembered the name of the documentary uh, about fracking, if any of our listeners are interested, uh, called Gasland. Mm. Yeah. And it's just about the fracking industry and, you know, the joys of what they're doing to the water. There's even archived footage from Dick Cheney himself, who kind of is the secret villain behind the whole fracking industry, and it's Halliburton. Well, that's unsurprising. Well, I guess that is our show for today. Thanks, <coughs> everybody, for tuning in. And thanks to our chatters. Um, we actually won't be back with another show next week. We are going to be gone for the next two weeks. So everybody have a happy holidays. Still tune in to the other SOT radio programs. Um, tomorrow there is the Truth Perspective and on Sunday, Newsreel. So, until next time. Have a great new year. Bye, everybody. Bye.